If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, where in just a moment we'll read from chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28. But in one of the chapters of his book, The Darkness and the Dawn, uh, Dr. Chuck Swindoll wrote that book years ago. But in one of the chapters of that book, he tells the story about a, a man named Ed who has a weekly tradition of coming to a certain pier somewhere off the coast of Florida, but every Friday evening at sunset, Ed comes to this particular pier, and he has nothing in his hands really but a bucket of shrimp. And within moments of his arrival, he's greeted by seagulls, just flocks upon flocks of seagulls. So that for the next hour or so, he stands there tossing out shrimp one by one to those hungry birds. And with each toss, he whispers, thank you, thank you. Now, the old man's name in, in life, his full name was Eddie Rickenbacker. And he was a war hero from World War I and World War II, a, a very decorated Air Force captain. But in 1942, on one of his missions that he was flying across the Pacific Ocean, he and his seven-member crew went down there in the ocean, and all of them miraculously survived. They managed to crawl out of their plane and into a life raft, where if you can imagine this, they floated upon the open sea for three weeks. They fought off sharks. They had to contend with the elements, the blazing hot sun, perhaps more than anything, they, they had to survive. They were constantly faced with hunger and thirst. And when the meager rations that they had salvaged from the plane ran out within eight days, they knew that they were hundreds of miles from land. Nobody knew where they were. And what they needed more than anything else really was a miracle. And so that's what they began praying for. When the last of their rations were gone, they all prayed for a miracle before taking a nap to try to conserve energy. Well, as the story goes, it wasn't long before Captain Rickenbacker felt something land on top of his cap. Lo and behold, it was a seagull. All of those hundreds of miles in the middle of nowhere, the middle of the ocean. And so he sat there perfectly still, carefully calculating his next move. He quickly grabbed the bird, he wrung its neck, and they began using whatever they could from the bird um, as, as bait. They began catching fish, which gave them food and sustenance and more bait. And so with that survival technique, they were able to endure until they were finally rescued. So Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, he survived all of that. He lived many years after that. He died, I believe it was 1973, but he never forgot the sacrifice of that seagull. And he never stopped saying thank you, which is why every Friday evening he would take that bucket of shrimp to the pier and he would feed the seagulls one by one while saying thank you. Now, looking on, some folks might think he was a strange old man to do that. 
And I got to thinking about that. The world may think it's strange when they look on my life and your life as believers and, and wonder why we make such a big deal out of the events of this weekend as we do. I mean, from Good Friday services to packed out churches on Easter Sunday morning. I mean, we Baptists do some strange things to celebrate Easter. I mean, getting up at the crack of dawn and eating biscuits with each other and going to sunrise services and all those kinds of things. And the world looks on and they hear the language that perhaps we use when we talk about uh, propitiation and words like redemption or atonement, resurrection. And the reason is Easter means so much more to us than simply a prolonged weekend or spring break or whatever. No, it's simply a way that we express our gratitude, our hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is our miracle of salvation. And the greatest words that have ever been spoken could well be the words that we read in this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 28 where the angel says of the risen Savior, he is not here, for he has risen. Aren't those powerful words to describe the tomb where the Lord was laid? He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Those words could not be said of any of the founders of the world's various religions, nor could they be spoken about any of the world's philosophers or politicians or anybody else deemed important by the world. These words could only be used to describe the victorious resurrection of the Son of God. Our Savior is alive and well. And that's the message of Easter. And so the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the greatest event in human history. It's literally the fulcrum upon which all of history turns. And the gospel is not simply that Jesus died for our sins. Obviously, it's true. He did die for our sins, and without his death, there would be no salvation from our sin. The, the debt wouldn't be paid. But if he were not raised from the dead, I would have no righteousness. So Jesus died, but he is not dead. And the gospel, the full message of the gospel, is that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised to life again on the third day. And now we're saved by means of his endless life. Romans 4.25 says that he was delivered up for our trespasses, but he was raised up for our justification. Hebrews 7.25 says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Which means if you're a believer in Christ, you need to know that you have an advocate before the throne of God right now at this very moment, and Jesus is interceding for you. And so that means now I don't have to fear death because Jesus has conquered death. He's overwhelmed the grave. And for this reason, the resurrection of Christ literally is the linchpin of Christianity. It's what's holding it all together. Without his resurrection, we would have no gospel. And so we've got good news, and Matthew writes about this good news and his gospel account in Matthew chapter 28, and I want you to read with me, and I want you to pay attention really how Matthew begins the chapter with this invitation for us to come and see, and then he closes out the chapter with this commission from Jesus telling us to go and tell. So the invitation of the gospel this morning is come and see, come to Christ. 
If you don't know Jesus, the invitation is for you. Come to Jesus. And then for those of us who do know Jesus, we've got a task that brings purpose to our life. And now we're sent into the world with this message. We're to go and tell that Christ died and rose again. So notice what Matthew says, beginning in verse number one of chapter 28. Uh, Now after the Sabbath, toward dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. And see, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him but some doubted. Which, by the way, notice the emphasis on worship in this 28th chapter of Matthew. Resurrection is, listen, this is cause for worship. Jesus demands nothing less than my worship. And so here you have these disciples. They're there with him on the mountain in Galilee. They're worshiping him while at the same time some doubted. And we're not going to pick on any of those who had their doubts because let's just be honest, all of us have been there at one point or another. And that's just part of our humanity. And the Bible is real and the Bible is honest with all of that, but but Jesus is the answer to even their doubts. Because verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want to speak for just a few moments from this subject. He is not here. Taken from that wonderful verse there in verse number six, he is not here, but he is risen just as he said he would. Now, for the last 2,000 years, the one ultimate question for the Christian faith and for our individual lives is this question, did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? Because either he did or he didn't. If he did not rise from the dead, I think it would be fair to say that we would be wasting our time this morning. If he did not 
rise from the grave, our faith is nothing more than superstition. If he did not rise, then there would be no need for us to give sacrificially to his cause. There would be no need for us to engage the world with this gospel message. If he did not rise, there would really be no purpose behind our relationships with each other as Christians. But if he did rise, then the situation is drastically different. Because if he did rise, that means there's nothing more pressing and urgent than the proclamation of this gospel message. If he did rise, then nothing is more important on earth than the local church. If he did rise, then that means his mission demands that we sacrifice and leverage all of our resources to take this good news of salvation to the ends of the earth. Because if he did rise, that means there's hope for every man, woman, boy, and girl. And folks, that's exactly the point that's being made with the testimony of Matthew here in this last chapter of his gospel. So notice just a few things from this chapter. Number one, notice with me the miraculous event of the resurrection itself. In the first 10 verses, Matthew describes for us the resurrection event, and he gives us uh, detail. In fact, all of the gospel narratives have something to say by way of unique detail that they contribute to uh, this message of Easter and what happened on that first Easter morning. And so what we really need to do here for just a few moments is, is some investigative analysis. Now, you know what happens when you do some investigative analysis? You want to answer certain questions like who and what when and where and those types of questions. So applying those questions to this particular passage of Scripture, notice with me the factor of when. When did all of this take place? Well, verse 1, Matthew says that it was after the Sabbath toward dawn on the first day of the week. Now we know that on the Jewish calendar, Passover began at sundown on Thursday evening. Jesus is crucified on Friday. He's buried in Joseph's tomb that afternoon. His body remains in the tomb on Sabbath, which was Saturday, and the resurrection happens after the Sabbath, very early on the first day of the week, which is Sunday morning. After this event, after Pentecost, the disciples, they, they keep meeting on, on Sunday morning to remember the resurrection of Christ. And, and Sunday morning becomes known as the Lord's Day. In fact, John refers to Sunday as the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Which means that the resurrection of Jesus is so miraculous that the early church begins meeting for worship on the first day of the week, which they designate as a very special time where we come together and we declare to the world that the tomb of our Lord is empty. By the way, you know that the tomb of Jesus is still going to be empty next Sunday morning. The tomb of Jesus was empty last Sunday morning. It's not just once a year that we as the church gather together to remember that Christ is alive. No, that's truth for me and you every single day. And we live out of the reality of the empty tomb. So in a very real way, every time the church comes together for worship, this is a reminder to the world. It's a message to the world that Jesus is alive. And so that's the factor of when. And then notice something else. Uh, consider the factor of who. Matthew tells us who was there to witness the empty tomb first. He says, after the Sabbath toward dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. 
The other gospels tell us that Salome was also there in their company, uh, the mother of of, uh, two of the disciples. And so Matthew, though, he wants us to know that it was the women who were there. They're the first ones to bear witness to the facts of the resurrection. And you see these faithful women who were there uh, with the disciples and and there um, all through the ministry of Jesus from Galilee. They accompany Jesus all throughout his earthly ministry. And so why are they there? Well, Mark's gospel says that they come early on the first day of the week so as to anoint the body of Jesus. They have spices that they've prepared to uh, anoint his body with. And so here you have these loyal and faithful women Uh, We know that they were there at the foot of the cross. Matthew says as much in chapter 27. When all of the disciples had fled, those ladies were there at the foot of the cross. We know that they're there in verse 61 when Jesus is taken from the cross and he's laid down in the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there. They watched Jesus at, at the burial. They saw where his body had been laid. And so now Matthew is telling us that these very same ladies are there early On the first day of the week, one more testimony of their faithfulness and their loyalty. You know, let me tell you something. Christianity has done more to elevate the status of women than any other religious system or philosophical system on the planet. Do you know that? And and, and you consider the fact that even in the first century, the testimony of women would not have been considered as legal testimony. So this is evidence that Matthew and the gospel writers, they're just simply telling the truth of the events as they happen. Here you have these women who were there, and and they're the first ones there. And then ask this question, the factor of what, number three. We've got to ask what happens. What is it that takes place? What is it that they witness? What is it that they're, 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 they're made aware of? Well, verse two says that there's a great earthquake And an angel of the Lord descends from heaven and rolls back the stone and then sits on the stone. His appearance was like lightning. It's amazing oftentimes as these angelic beings from heaven are described with that kind of detail that they they have this radiance, this just supernatural aura about them, this brilliance from another world. The best way to describe their appearance was was lightning. Uh, We... Anita and I, we, we ate the other night over in Kernersville, and I was meeting her, and I got in a terrible storm on the way over there. And I kid you not, I was terrified of the lightning. And even though I was in my car going down the highway, the lightning was just flashing, it seemed like, on just both sides of the car. And I thought, man, that, that lightning's going to hit the car. I could just see it now happening. They're going to blow the tires out, and I don't know what's going to happen. But There's something about lightning that's just fearsome and bright and hot. Well, that's the way that these angels are described here, this this angelic messenger. And pay attention to the word that's used in verse 2, the word behold. In fact, Matthew will use this several times in the chapter. That word behold, this is a word that begs careful attention on the part of the reader. So it's almost as if we're we're being invited to just pause and just contemplate the facts as Matthew says they take place. And so that's the what factor. And then consider the factor of why. Why does all of this happen? Why is the tomb empty? Why has the stone been removed? Why is it, by the way, the angel comes and rolls the stone away not to let Jesus out but to let the witnesses in. 
Don't think for one second that Jesus needed the angel to remove the stone so that he could get out. No, in his glorified body, he supernaturally passed through it. But the, the, the stone is removed so that the whole world can look at the reality of what's happened. The tomb is empty. Come, see the place where he lay. And so these are the words of reassurance for the women from the angel. Don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said he would. And so there the why question is answered. Jesus is risen true to his word. Jesus is risen just like the law and the prophets said that the Messiah would. Jesus has risen in fulfillment of prophetic promise. That's the explanation here. In fact, Jesus mentioned many times during his ministry that he would rise from the dead, so much so that he would be an imposter if he did not rise from the dead. The litmus test of any prophet was that that prophet's words had to come true, and if the prophet's words didn't come true, then he was found to be a false prophet worthy of death. Jesus said, I'm going to lay down my life, but Jesus said, you need to know something. I've got the authority to take it up again. I lay my life down on my own accord, and I have the authority to take it up again. And so Jesus says, I'm going to rise again. And that's what happens. That's the, that's the explanation. That's the why question being answered. And then consider one more question. What about, what about the factor of where? The where question. Verse 8 says that the women departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. They run to tell the disciples. And so now their joy is going to be exponentially increased because the Bible says that Jesus meets them along the way somewhere, and he simply gives them a word of greeting. And they take hold of his feet, and they worship him, and, and then Jesus gives them this reassurance, don't be afraid, but go tell my brethren to meet me in Galilee. They're going to see me. You think about the range of emotions that these women went through on that first Easter Sunday morning. Early in the morning, they're making their way to the tomb with their spices. Their hearts are heavy. They're full of grief and sadness. The one in whom they had placed all of their hopes had been cruelly crucified and had died and had been buried. What now for the hope of Israel? And then that sadness gives way to fear when they witness the events of what happens with the angel and the message of the angel, that fear then gives way to joy. That joy then gives way to worship. And all of this is a roller coaster of emotions that these ladies must have felt. Now listen, some of you came in here this morning on Easter. You've perhaps been on that roller coaster of emotion yourself recently. Maybe you came to church this morning with your hearts heavy, saddened over the grief associated with the loss of someone that you love or some type of severe disappointment that's come your way in life. And listen, don't think that you have to hide those emotions and put on some kind of facade when you gather together with the church. There's not a single person here who's got it all together. We're all just a bunch of basket cases, let's just be honest. We all ride that roller coaster of emotions, and sometimes we feel like life throws us a curveball, and man, we feel one thing one day, and we feel something else the next. Listen, the Scripture is honest with our emotions. 
God meets us at the point of our greatest moment of despair, and at that moment, Jesus meets these ladies and explains to them the reality of what's happened. Now, maybe your heart's heavy because you've lost someone this past year that you love. You're a husband who's buried a wife. You're a wife who's buried a husband. You're a parent who's lost a child. A child who's lost a parent. There's someone who's lost a friend. And you felt that sadness and you felt that grief associated with death and you know that there's something deep down inside of you that tells you it shouldn't be this way. And Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, he says, we grieve and we sorrow as believers, but not as those who have no hope. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, for the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord Jesus. There's hope. We don't have to fear death. There's hope beyond the grave for the person who places their faith and trust in Jesus. That means your loved one who's died in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to see them again because of the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of resurrection that's been given to you. Do you know that? Do you live with that kind of hope and that kind of confidence? Man, think about that. We don't have to refer to our loved ones in the past tense because of the resurrection. That spouse that you have buried this past year, you don't have to say, well, he or she was. No, you can say he or she is with the Lord Jesus. You can still speak present tense because of the resurrection of Jesus. And you can look forward to that future moment of glory where you too are going to be given a resurrection body. The dead in Christ one day are going to rise at the coming of Christ and we're all going to be given a resurrection body patterned after the Lord's own body. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now listen, some of y'all ought to just cut a cartwheel right now that I, I just said you're going to be given a brand new glorified resurrection body. Because you got out of bed this morning, you felt the aches and the pains, didn't you? You, you felt the, the stiffness in your body as you're just getting older. And you reached across and you put those eyes on your face so that you could see. One day, I'm going to take these things and throw them in the trash can. I won't need them. Because I'm going to be given a resurrection body. And the body of Jesus, his resurrection body is the prototype of what that future body is going to involve. He's not a phantasm. He's not a spirit. He's not a ghost here. He's, he's the risen, bodily risen Savior. And so what a difference a day makes for these women here in Matthew's gospel. So all of that's the, the miracle of the event itself. Now, notice the second thing. Notice the man-made explanation for the resurrection. Because it comes as no surprise to learn that there are some who do not share our enthusiasm when it comes to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. And you see this in verse number 11, because no sooner than word gets out that the tomb is empty, here you have the enemy of all souls who's trying to introduce a lie so as to keep people blinded to the truth. And so there are all kinds of alternative man-made explanations throughout the centuries, all in an attempt to try to make sense of the empty tomb of Jesus. And the first man-made explanation, the one that's described here by Matthew, uh, is this explanation, someone moved or stole the body. Those Roman soldiers are bribed to simply say the disciples came by night while we were sleeping and they removed the body. 
But you see, here's the thing. When you really begin weighing that against the evidence, you can see how crazy a theory this would be. I mean, just look at all of the obstacles that anyone wanting to remove the body of Jesus would have had to have overcome. Pilate ordered the tomb to be sealed and guarded. Anyone moving the body would have to get past these Roman soldiers who were highly professional, trained men, some of the world's best, heavily armed. During the night watch, one part of the group always had to stay awake while the others slept, and Roman guards did not leave their post because if they did, if they failed in their duty, they could be executed themselves. And so someone wanting to steal the body would have had to have sneak up on these highly trained Roman soldiers, overwhelm these Roman soldiers, somehow remove the stone, do something with the body, and that's just so highly improbable. Furthermore, consider where the disciples were at the time. They were huddled in fear in an upper room, fearful that they too would be experiencing the same fate, crucifixion, persecution. No, all of this breaks down. This explanation breaks down. The only explanation is that Jesus is risen, just like he said he would rise. Well, somewhere along the way, someone introduced a second explanation, and and it was this. Well, somebody else died in Jesus' place. It wasn't really Jesus who died on the cross. There was someone else that died in his place, and it was just this elaborate hoax But listen, no other man would go to the cross and not be kicking and screaming. I'm telling y'all, y'all got the wrong guy. No, there was a penalty for a Roman guard who made that kind of mistake in, in, in failure to carry out an execution. Everybody involved in the death of Jesus had their reasons to be certain that it was him on the cross. Not the least of which, the women who were there at the foot of the cross, the disciple John was there at the foot of the cross. And they all bear witness to the fact that Jesus dies on the cross when the Roman soldiers come and they break the legs of the two criminals crucified uh, beside Jesus. They come to Jesus to break his legs, but they don't have to because he's already dead. And furthermore, they don't break his legs because prophecy said not one bone of the Messiah would ever be broken. The Passover lamb, none of its bones could be broken. And so what did they do? Well, they take the spear and they thrust it into the side of Jesus on the cross and, 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 and from his side gushes forth blood and water, which is proof that he is dead on the cross. The Roman centurion testifies to this. A third man-made explanation that came along somewhere along the way was that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He merely fainted on the cross. This became known as the swoon theory, but when you know the facts surrounding the crucifixion and surrounding the torture of Jesus even before the crucifixion, the fact that he was on the cross for six long agonizing hours, there's there's no way that these highly trained Roman soldiers who were trained to carry out these executions didn't know that he had died. No, they knew that he had died. And then a fourth explanation would be this explanation, the disciples just had a mass hallucination. They just thought that the risen Jesus appeared to them when it was nothing more than just a hallucination. But it's interesting to me that you read the gospel accounts and you read the book of Acts and that hallucination keeps happening and keeps happening. Over the course of 40 days, he appears to the disciples 
Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time, perhaps at his ascension into heaven. No, the disciples did not all have a hallucination, but they saw Jesus over long stretches of time. They interacted with Jesus. They sat down and had breakfast with Jesus. They saw his scars. Those who had been skeptics and doubters like Thomas, they had an interaction with Jesus, and they come to believe that Jesus is indeed the risen Christ. If you're interested in this kind of thing and you want to read a little bit more as far as the evidence is concerned for the resurrection, uh, there's a book that's recently come out, uh, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston. Uh, he's written several books in the area of apologetics. Uh, Gary Habermas wrote the foreword to this book, and Gary Habermas is perhaps the foremost scholar on the resurrection. He's a professor at Liberty University. He's written several books. But this is just a simple little book that examines seven of the best reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how the evidence shows that the narratives of the gospel are verified as far as all of the evidence is concerned. Archaeology confirms. Folks, we serve a risen Savior. This is not just superstition we're talking about here. We're talking about the facts of history. And we're living in a time when facts don't matter to people. But let me tell you, the facts stand for themselves. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most well-documented event in the history of the world. And yet we receive by faith Christ as our Savior, don't we? We believe. So the event itself is considered. The explanations that man has come up with along the way, we've considered that. Now, one final thing that I want you to see at the close of the chapter is this, the missionary emphasis of the resurrection. Because what begins in, in the first part of the chapter with this invitation, come and see, it concludes with this responsibility on the part of those of us who've received Christ, who've been saved, who believe, now we're commissioned by Christ to go and tell. And I think sometimes we miss the fact that the Great Commission comes on the heels of the resurrection. If our Savior is risen, then it logically follows that this message of his death and his resurrection, this is something that we need to declare to our family. This is something that we need to declare to our neighbors. This is something that we need to declare to the whole wide world. So these women give testimony to the reality of this event to the disciples. Those disciples then, they meet and interact with the risen Jesus, and Jesus has this commission known as the Great Commission that he gives. And if you want to know what the church is to be about, right here it is. Here's our marching orders as the church. What are our marching orders? Listen, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why? Because he's overcome the grave. Because he's the son of God. Because he's both Lord and Christ. That's Peter's message, by the way, on the day of Pentecost. He tells those who are assembled in Jerusalem, he says, you need to know something. You need to know that, that, that God the Father has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. It means he's Savior and he's boss. He is Savior and he's Lord of my life. And Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And then he says in verse 19, go therefore... As you're living your life, as you're going on your way, go. Be intentional when it comes to going and making disciples of all nations. Panta ethnos, Greek means all people groups. 
all ethnicities. It means that the gospel is not just good news for one exclusive ethnicity or ethnic group. No, we're to take the gospel. It's a global gospel. We're to share the good news of salvation with the nations because there's no other hope of salvation but Jesus and Jesus alone. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And baptism is the first act of obedience of a person who's repented of their sin and placed their faith and trust in this risen Savior. And baptism is such a wonderful picture of the gospel. You saw it earlier. Death, burial, and resurrection. It's a, listen, when I'm standing in that water of baptism, it's almost as if I'm standing in a watery grave. And it's a symbol of my union with Christ. So that when, as a believer, I'm lowered under the water, that's a picture of how I, the old me died and was buried with Christ. And now when I'm raised out of that watery grave, it's a picture of resurrection life that's mine. I've now been raised in the fullness of life. I've now been raised by the power of Christ. I now have been given meaning and purpose and forgiveness. I've been reconciled to God. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? And so all of this brings to a close just the, the message of Matthew Teach those disciples, verse 20, teach those disciples to observe, to obey all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's interesting to me that the, the chapter begins with this message, come and see, he is not here. And it concludes with this commission, go and tell, for he is here. <laughs> Isn't that just a good word? Jesus says, I am with you always in the good times and the bad times of life, in the disappointments and the struggles of life. When you feel like you can't make it another step, Jesus says, I'm with you. When you're experiencing persecution, when you're experiencing pain, when you feel like you've hit rock bottom in life, Jesus says, I am with you. When people abandon you and they mistreat you and they betray you, Jesus says, I am with you. When you lose those that you love to death and when you feel lonely and when you feel sad, Jesus says, I am with you. And my friend, let me tell you something. The risen Christ is going to take us all the way home, all the way home. And that's good news that we have that we can live with. Thank God. Amen. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? And so the story isn't over. As long as we have breath and as long as the church has been left in the world, we've got a responsibility to share the news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and that people can have hope in him. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done in life or where you've been or how big of a mess up you feel like you are and how big of a mess of things you've made in your life. You don't think God already knows that? He does, but he loves you. And he wants you to be forgiven and saved and reconciled and a member of his family. Have you been to the empty tomb? Like these women that Matthew describes here, can you say that you've fallen at the feet of the risen Jesus in worship? You know, elsewhere Jesus said, blessed are those who've seen. But he says, blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet they believe anyway. That's me and you. 
But make no mistake about it, the time is coming when Jesus is going to return and every eye will see him in all of his glory. But salvation is for the one who turns from their sin and they place their faith and trust in Jesus. And it's faith alone that saves you. Faith alone. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Listen, it's not enough for you to believe in Jesus as a miracle worker. It's not enough for you to simply acknowledge that he was a historical figure. No, the gospel demands that I turn to him in faith. That I confess Jesus is Lord with my mouth. And in my heart, I believe that God has raised him from the dead. And whoever does so, the scripture says, will be saved. Here in just a moment, we're going to sing. Our pastors will be here along the front. If you say, Pastor, I want to become a Christian today. I I want to surrender my life to Christ. I want to invite you to come. I'd be right there where you are. In an attitude of faith, you could say, Lord, I confess my sin and my need for you, and I believe this gospel message. Save me, Jesus. And the first step of obedience for any believer is believer's baptism, just as Jesus says right here in Matthew 28. And we'd love to help you with that. We invite you to come. We'll be right here as we sing, or after the service is over, you can seek one of us out, one of our pastors here. I'll, I'll be out in the lobby. We'd love to talk to you about baptism and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Lord, thank you for the good news of salvation, for the death and the resurrection of the Son of God. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. In Jesus' name, amen.